Do you feel prepared? With everything going on in the world, do you find yourself thinking about self-defense, home protection, and financial protection more than ever? One form of financial protection is diversification. Gold has often been used to protect assets against inflation. Gold is a global reserve asset, and countries are buying massive amounts of gold as a hedge against financial collapse. It's time to help protect yourself and invest in gold. Stop thinking things are going to get better. You need to look out for yourself and your family. Visit LearnAboutGold.com. LearnAboutGold.com is a simple, free educational website. LearnAboutGold.com can help you learn about gold. Our website has extensive educational resources that can help guide you along the path of precious metals investing. It's time to inform yourself about why owning gold is more important today than ever. LearnAboutGold.com. That's LearnAboutGold.com. Three words. LearnAboutGold.com. End of the war, when we pulled out of Vietnam, two and a half million people were killed. There's people trying to cling to helicopters to hold on to their lives. And I saw that and I was shocked because they showed me what communism was. The winner is John Voight! Four-time Oscar nominee, winner of one of those, 11-time Golden Globe nominee with four wins, star of Mission Impossible, Heat, Deliverance, Coming Home, Midnight Cowboy, and so many other classic movies, John Voight is no question one of the Hollywood greats, an iconic actor, wide acclaim, tons of memorable characters. And he happens to be one of the most outspoken conservatives and Trump supporters in all of the entertainment industry. But that wasn't always the case. As he was finding prominence in movies in the late 60s and early 70s, John found himself echoing the beliefs held by the majority of the liberal Hollywood circle. In particular, he was actively marching and speaking out against the Vietnam War as a young man with newfound clout. Make love, not war. That's a message nearly anybody could get behind. But something changed as John began to see the Marxist intentions behind the anti-war activism. John began to realize he didn't stand for the things Hollywood was by and large selling. In our show, we'll get into how in 2020, we're living through another Marxist movement infiltrating American thought and society, one very similar to what John experienced firsthand in the 70s. Plus, John tells us about his big break that launched him into the Hollywood limelight, his advice for conservatives trying to make it in Tinseltown, and his thoughts on the new woke Academy Award stipulations. Hey, hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special. Just a reminder, we'll be doing some bonus questions at the end with John. The only way to get access to that part of the conversation is to become a member. Head on over to dailywire.com, become a member. You'll have access to all of the full conversations with every one of our awesome guests. John Voigt, thanks so much for showing up. Really appreciate oh, it. Oh, this is amazing. I'm just, even watching you do that is an amazing thing. I come, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to be with you. If that excited you, get get ready because this is going to just blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's start with uh, with some Hollywood questions because okay. uh, we'll get to politics a now little bit. Now let me later. ask you a question. Do you change your personality when you do this show? I don't think so. I might be a little bit less uh, wild than I am normally. Maybe Less wild? Yeah. Holy smoke. I know. I, I'm basically dead when I do this show, but yeah. Well, uh, you're fantastic. You turn something on. Uh, when when I hear you know when I hear action you know I usually calm down, you know I don't go oh yeah I don't go with the same steam that the director has when he says action you know I that's go, because you're a good I actor just, whereas I am a terrible terrible actor so, <laughs> <laughs> so for me I act like a, a squirrel on Ritalin in any case let's <laughs> let's talk about how you got into acting in the first place because everybody sort of has a different story as to how they got into that particular area of the industry how did you get into yeah. acting yeah well I, I, when I was a little kid I, I I'm three years old and you have three kids uh, I was I started painting and drawing when I was three. And, I, and that, was my, that was my whole focus. I loved it. You know, I, I had papers all over the house. My parents were very tolerant of all of it. had to walk over these paintings and drawings. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I saw uh, movies with my father and my two brothers. I, had a, I was the middle of three, three boys a year apart. And uh, we saw movies. And that was when I was five. And when I was six, uh, I retired from painting and drawing because I realized this new media was uh, 
made, made my stuff, two-dimensional art, obsolete in my mind, right? And I really, when I say retired, I had the sadness of it, you know, in, uh, an emptiness in, in a way. And I kept drawing and do, doing things for people's favors and stuff for school and all of that, but, uh, but I'd, I'd lost my real connection. And I didn't think that I would ever be part of this, this world of film. Uh, but I was a fun kid, you know, I was so playful, like making people laugh. And I, I followed my dad's lead. He, he was a golf professional and he loved, uh, he had a wonderful sense of humor and he loved uh, Sid Caesar, you know, different things that he focused on. And I fell in love with Sid Caesar's work and Imogen Coke and, you know, Carl Reiner and those guys. And, uh, and I used to imitate Sid's characters at school. And I got attention for it, you know, uh, enough that they asked me to do the comedy lead in a show in the sixth grade. And I took it very seriously. And looking back, I did a lot of sophisticated things at that time that would have indicated that I would have gone on. But I, I was playing golf, because my dad had taught me golf. I loved all athletics. And I loved horsing around and had a lot of fun, you know, and I didn't take anything too seriously. Then in high school again, and then in college, I, every year of college, the first three years of college, I was always asking mostly gals, what do you think I should do when I get out of college? And in college, I was, uh, I was very active in, uh, in, I was taking art because I knew I could get through it. And I was very, I was the president of the class, president of the fraternity, that and very active writing things for the newspaper. I was walking through campus when I came back just before my senior year. And I looked at the book that I had in my hand and it was a book of criticism of, uh, of acting, of the British actors, the great British actors by Kenneth Tynan. And there's all these reviews, and I had marked all of Laurence Olivier's heroic roles. And Kenneth Tynan loved him, so he was very romantic about Laurence Olivier and described everything that he did. And I understood what Olivier was doing in creating those roles, how he uh, illuminated things in the, in, the, in the story by the way he chose to do the roles, the character acting, you know. And I looked at it and I said to myself, and I actually said it, I think, even, even verbally, I said, I know what I want to do. I want to be him. I want to be him. Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> and I was, a, I was a, you know, I looked very young when I was young, blonde hair and a tall, thin fella. And uh, I knew I wasn't going to be mature for a while to do certain kinds of roles. But I knew I was going to, from that moment, I knew I was going to go to New York and start school all over again, trying to learn, learn a few things and get into acting. And I knew at that moment that I wasn't going to quit. I was going to stay with it. It's funny things that you remember, you know. And sure enough, I had my ups and downs, but uh, I was very fortunate to have the career I have. So I want to ask you how the big break happened where you went from being a guy in college who wanted to act to, you know, being an Oscar winner and multiple Oscar nominee and all of this. I'm going to ask you about that in just one second. But first, let's talk about stamps. Right now is a terrible time to go to the post office. As we slowly adjust to this new normal, we still need to be smart about how we do business. Luckily, there's stamps.com to make things easier. Thousands of small business owners have discovered the benefits of stamps.com in recent months. They've been able to keep their businesses running and avoid the crowds of the post office all from their home computers or office computers. With stamps.com, you can print postage on demand and avoid going to the post office at all. You'll save money with discounted rates you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts up to 62%, no residential surcharges. Here at The Daily Wire, we've been using stamps.com since 2017, which is why we are a thriving media empire. No more wasting our time or our money. Stamps.com brings all the mailing and shipping services you need directly to your computer in the comfort of your home or office. Whether you're a small business sending invoices or an online seller shipping out products, or you're just working from home and need to mail stuff, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it once the mail is ready. Leave it for the mail carrier, schedule a pickup, drop it in the mailbox. It is indeed 
That simple. Again, there are great discounts. Five cents off every stamp, up to 62% off those USPS and UPS shipping rates. Right now, my listeners get a special offer. It includes a four-week trial plus free postage and digital scale. No long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Shapiro. That's stamps.com, enter Shapiro. Okay, so you decide that uh, acting is what you want to do and you go to New York. A lot of people end up going to New York thinking that this is what they're going to do and then, you know, washing dishes three years later. So how how does the big break happen where you don't end up washing dishes in New York? Well, I did a little stuff to earn a living, uh, you know, trying to help my dad out. I wasn't very good at it. I had to lean on my father a lot. Uh, But uh, I went to, I I was fortunate enough to go, to gain entrance into Sandy Meisner's professional class. And in that, I learned some basics. I, I, I was very unsure because I had gone to a, a, a rather a bad teacher prior uh, who was full of himself and didn't really know what he was talking about. And I was, but you know, teachers have so much control over, over their students. And you know, you're glued to every word. And, and then I realized this guy wasn't taking me anywhere. And, and I found my way to Sandy Meisner and Sandy gave me a structure that I really deeply needed. And uh, I spent two years going to every class, twice a week. And uh, at the end of that time, I came out thinking, look, now I have to go to work here. Uh, And I was doing other jobs and stuff, but I always found a way to get to class. And and then I was very fortunate to get uh, a part in A View from the Bridge with Bobby Duvall as the lead. And it was an Arthur Miller play, a great Arthur Miller play. And, uh, and, and I was very celebrated in that part of Rodolfo in A View from the Bridge. And uh, I felt, okay, yeah, I, I, I can do dramatic acting. I can, you know, I'm no more fooling around. And, uh, and then that led finally to me getting Midnight Cowboy because I met Dustin Hoffman there. We became friends in a way. And uh, when, when I... Uh, I read Midnight Cowboy, sent him the book. Uh, I, I was probably one of 20 people who sent him the book because the character was so possible for him, you know. And uh, his uh, work in The Graduate, his success, his celebrity made it possible to make Midnight Cowboy. And eventually after uh, screen tests and stuff like that, I was able to get that role and that, that was the beginning. But uh, and I, I worked with all, I, I never one moment of it uh, was unappreciative of the break that I had been given and the wonderful circumstance of working with these very, very talented people. And Dustin, of course, was at the top of the list, too. So actors prepare for parts in different ways, obviously. What, what's the way that you prepare for a part? You get a script, you've decided you want to do it. Now, how do you prepare well, to get into I part? asked you, Ben, I asked you, uh, the first time when I spoke to Ben prior to just doing this, I asked Ben if he had a photographic memory because his his amazing, uh, Ben is amazing. And when I, 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 we'll talk about him later, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I asked him if he had a photographic memory. I don't. I don't have a photographic memory. And it's hard for me to learn words uh, easily. Uh, I have to get into the character somehow. I have to believe in it a little bit, you know? And, and I find that going over the words and testing the words and improvising and playing, that's how I get to the part. And it's a, if I had a photographic memory, as many do, uh, I probably would miss out on a lot of insights on my way to performing the role. So it gives me time to di- marinate and digest and, and then produce whatever I d- have done. How much of it is spontaneous and how much of it is prepared? I've always wondered this uh, when you watch somebody on film. Well, it's all prepared in some way, but the, but the real, um, the really wonderful performances, the great performances, in my estimation, come from people who are, have that danger. They're doing it for the first time. In some way, they're improvising something. Do you see? So when I go on a set, I try to say, oh, I have a little phrase that I use actually, uh, and I, I'm just there. You know, it's a, almost a challenge to see if I'll do anything. 
What's the phrase? And, no, I can't tell. No. <laughs> it's it's just any way of just saying I don't give a damn. <laughs> so it's like, so I get up there, and then it's all fresh. Every take, I'm looking for what's there, and not preparing to do it a certain way. Now, understand, I've gone through many many different uh, thoughts about it, and and. Uh, played with it many times before. So when I get up, I have a, I've tried a lot of avenues. So a lot of avenues are open. I've closed off nothing finally when I get to it. But I, I know how this character speaks. I know what he feels about this particular thing. I know who I'm talking to, if I'm going to use other people in my life, and my own life experiences and stuff like that. And many, many techniques. I think all, all of them are worthwhile. But finally, that, that little edge that you have when, you, when you're really listening and really at risk in a, in a sequence, that's when the best acting comes. So you, you're, the parts you've played are incredibly diverse. I mean, you've played everything yeah. from hero to villain and everything in between. So what are the favorite parts that you've played? What's your favorite stuff you've done? Well, I think that all the ones that are, are, are successful are, you know, dear to me, really. Uh, Midnight Cowboy, that character, and that, was, that came a long way. I mean, that was very, very interesting. I got that part because I had an insight into that role by the time... I did the screen test because I'd read the book and I'd thought about it a lot. And I, I got the role because I was talking, uh, John Schlesinger said, oh, John, you know, well, you're an interesting young man and uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. They had three people. We have three people. We're quite interested in one of them. I am. And uh, I'd like you to, uh, I'd like to spend some time with our writer, Waldo Salt. He's a lovely fellow. And you, and if he thinks you're interesting enough, we'll give, we'll open up and make another birth in the screen test. I said, well, I couldn't be happier, you know, and more grateful. I'm, I'm delighted I'll meet Waldo Saul. I pursued that character because I knew that if someone took that, that character and had any vanity associated with the role, if they were, wanted to be cool, let's say, at that time, you see, this is, this is the end of the 60s, they wanted to be attractive before you'll lose the part i said this fellow is lonely he's so insecure he doesn't know who he is exactly and he's trying to find a place for himself in society and he's trying to you know what people have told him about him you know uh, i'm a really good lover and you know all that stuff he's trying to that's the energy he's really at risk in every scene and that loneliness will provide a lot of humor, uh, uh, and it will also touch your heart. That's what I said. And he said, and he liked that idea. He said, that's exactly right, John, said Waldo Salt to me. And so he recommended that I do the screen test. And uh, subsequently, I, I did it. And, uh, and then I'll tell you this little thing. They were, they had, uh, my screen test came down to two people. One was eliminated right away, the one that was the front runner, let's say, according to what they told me. And then it came down to myself and a, a very good actor named Michael Sarazen. And Michael had just gotten a, a big role with uh, George C. Scott that was coming out pretty soon. So he was more of, they, they had more, uh, uh, capital in his corner and they were looking at our screen test back and forth and uh, and at one point uh, Dustin Hoffman was asked to look at the screen test now Dusty was a fellow who I knew very well and, and liked very much he saw me do that work on view from the bridge and uh, and then he be became a big success with the graduate and I had not never seen him act we just came to help out the director on A View from the Bridge. So. so anyway, he saw the screen test and uh, apparently they asked him, Dusty, what do you think? And he said, well, when I look at Michael Sarazen's screen test, I'm looking at me. When I look at John Voight's screen test, I'm looking at John. And, that, and, and I told Dusty this to check to see if it was real, you know, mm -hmm. because these stories, everything gets, you know, many stories get shaped out of something like that. And he said, uh, he said, oh, that's good. 
Dusty's response, <laughs> whether he remembered it or not, probably didn't remember it. So, uh, so anyway, that's how it happened for me. You've worked with some of the biggest actors in Hollywood because you are one of the biggest actors in Hollywood. So, who are your favorites to work with on a personal level? Well, uh, obviously, uh, the story with Dusty, uh, he was uh, a joy to work with. We had a lot of fun. We improvised all the time. We improvised a lot of stuff in the film. We were on the same level in some way. We knew how to feed each other. And that doesn't happen all the time. You know, chemistry, you know, you, know, you talk about chemistry in our business, and it's a, a magical aspect. Does it, do they have chemistry? And I've been very fortunate because I've had chemistry with a lot of, a lot of wonderful people. So if I go through the list of the things that I've done, I have to say, thank God that actor was there. You know, like Burt Reynolds, uh, and, and Deliverance, or Jane Fonda in Coming Home, uh, Ricky Schroeder uh, in, uh, in The Champ, and uh, um, Eric Roberts in Runaway Train. Those are the early ones. And then l later on, uh, I worked with, with great people uh, like Shia LaBeouf and Holes, and, uh, and uh, J-Lo and Anaconda, <laughs> and stuff like that, you know. But everyone brings, when, they, when they're right for a role, when someone's right, they have a certain energy. And if you, like if I was miscast in a, in a film, I, I could damage a film from being miscast. Uh, I, I, sometimes my ego tells me I can do almost anything, but I can't, I, you know, I'd be wrong for certain things. So, uh, so you're, I'm very grateful for the roles that I'm able to deliver and very grateful for those people who come and, and light it up so that I can do good work. So how do you pick scripts? I mean, I, I'm sure you've been receiving, you know, thousands of scripts a year for every year well, of your career. So not, not so much that, but I, something has to touch me in a script. You know, I have to sense a, a, a truth in it and I can be way off, but you know, I, I sense something I want to say in, in a script. There's to be something. And if it isn't there, I try to make it there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because if somebody's saying, well, you, this love is coming towards you, you'd take, take the role and do what you can with it to help them out and do this piece. And so I, uh, I have a, a reputation of really taking a deep interest in, uh, in the script. And... Uh, and that's right, I do. I want, to, I want it to say something that I can uh, live with. Do you have any uh, near misses, things that you consider doing? No, I don't. Then... No, everything was perfect. <laughs> uh, I, uh, no, I, 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 the ones that didn't work out so well, I don't really, I, they're like children, you know, you're rooting for all the ch children and you didn't quite make it or whatever, but uh, not so many, you know, I've, I've done pretty well. And the ones that I was offered that I didn't do, I'll give you an example. I say, what what would be a part that you don't think you're quite right for? They offered me love story, and I said to them when they offered it to me, I was, you know, one of the hot actors at the time and could get something done. And I, Ali McGraw was going to do it, and and I said, no, I can't take this role. I said, I, I'll ruin it. I'll I'll make it too complicated. I said, what you want is a simple all-American guy. A really decent, good guy, and that's it, you know. And somebody can deliver that, and that's what happened. They got a great, great actor to do that one. So let's turn to politics now and politics in Hollywood. So you're obviously one of the most outspoken conservatives in Hollywood. Yes, you, you, you've noticed that. I have. I think you noticed that early noticed that. on. Yeah, I know. It, it took us. It took us 20 <laughs> minutes to get there, but eventually I came around. So, so how did you first discover? Number one, that you even were conservative, because being in the arts, that's, that's yeah, not a typical thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I talked about going to school in, with Sandy Meisner and uh, learning to act, it was the 60s. The 60s was a huge time, great chaos, great disturbance. Uh, and what was going on at that time was uh, in, many, in many parts caused by the death of John Kennedy. I have been quoted as saying that, that America was traumatized by that. And I believe we were in some way. And, uh, and there, were, there were forces at work to try to bring down this country internally. No one 
was alert to it. Most people were not alert to it. And, uh, and I'm, talking about, I'm talking about Russia. Cold War with Russia. Well, what did that mean? It was a war. And what was their, uh, what were their tools? What was their weapon in that war? We had the atomic bomb. You know, that gave people pause with us. And, it's, uh, and we used it wisely, that, that energy, to warn people off. But what we didn't see was the techniques that they employed to undermine our country, to destabilize our country. And techniques, it's a, a list of things that they intended to do. And they had had practice because they certainly turned around Eastern Europe, North Korea, Vietnam, and eventually South Vietnam as well. Uh, they had these techniques that were at work, Cuba. And th those same techniques were being used, employed here. So all of a sudden, this chaos erupted, and all of a sudden, all of this came to the surface. There, was, there were people talking in the way they hadn't talked about America before. And uh, everything was negative. They had a list of negative things. America's this, America's doing this, America's... And uh, these were planted in, in, our, in our society. And, you know, when you say, make love, not war, right? That was a plan from this, this uh, worm that was, plant, was put into our system. There, there, there was the Frankfurt School that came in. You know, you know all of this stuff. You're educated about it. And, uh, and I and most of the people were just saying, well, it, it's easy to be critical of people. Once you are critical, you know, it, it sticks to you in a certain way. If I said, well, Ben Shapiro is an egomaniac and, and, you know what I mean, he's cheap too. Boom. Somebody will hold on to that, you know, and that'll be your definition until you're somehow proven wrong. Do you see? People like to know stuff. You know what I mean? That's why uh, so much of the television today is critical. Everything's negative, negative, negative. Because it sells in some, in some sense. Anyway, and this society that we have is this free society. What an amazing thing. Freedom. Freedom to speak. Now, we're having problems with that today. As we know in our schools and stuff, we, you're not allowed to say this and that. Do you see what I mean? You're not allowed to really express yourself without endangering yourself. Do you see? And you know that very well, you know. So uh, anyway, that's what was happening at that time in our society, and we were unaware of it. Because of the freedoms that we offered, people who were enemies of our country could find a way to the media, to Hollywood, to our universities. They could speak at our universities. Freedom. And so we had um, people who were looking to... Uh, to undermine and destroy our society that had a connection to uh, the young people. And uh, so we have uh, uh, the 60s, what is it? Dr sex, drugs, and rock and roll. How wonderful that is, huh? Are you going to raise a kid on that? And that's what was going on. Uh, and, and this was, I, I say this was planted. The stuff was planted. So, uh, so it was a chaotic, chaotic time. And I was just, I was pulled along with it. They, they had marches against the war, right? They, they focused on the war. This is a way we can do it, the war. Well, you know, America's imperialist. Well, who was imperialist? Communists were trying to move into then take over that country. And I came after I had some success, especially, a lot of people were focused on me. They wanted to, John, would you come and say a word of this or meet so-and-so or whatever it is. And some of those characters were pretty charismatic characters too, like Abby Hoffman, for instance, who I knew. I was introduced to, you know. And Abby was a very talented guy, but he was drug-filled and he was in the wrong, he was set in the wrong frame, but he was very charismatic, nice to be with, interesting, very bright. So he was uh, a torpedo, you know. A anyway, so I was caught up in that a little bit. 
and uh, and especially because of the people, the young people in in this industry when I got there, were all, you know, deeply on the left. And when I, we, I went on a march or so to Washington, I went on one of the marches to Washington against the war. Everyone knew that that march was organized by the, the American Communist Party. I did. And I didn't th even think about it. I said, oh, well, this is, you know, good at organizing or something. What? You know, I didn't put things together. And I think, you know, and that's the way it is, you know, it's, uh, you're, you're not thinking in any depth about these things. Uh, at least I wasn't. I was, my, what was my focus? I wanted to get a job. I wanted to work in Hollywood. I wanted to be one of those guys that was, you know, the, the, the uh, continuance of Cary Grant and Gary Cooper and those guys, right? That's what I was thinking. And I was very aware of the world, uh, the world cinema and all of that. And that was very romantic to me, all of it. But anyway, I was not paying a whole lot of attention to, to what really was coming down, and I didn't have the tools to understand it. And then what happened to me was end of the war when we pulled out of Vietnam, two and a half million people were killed in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. There was so much bloodshed. It was a horror. It was people trying to cling to helicopters to hold on to their lives. And, uh, and I saw that and I was shocked, you know, because they showed me what communism was. These people who were in desperate need, the people, the boat people trying to save their lives and their families and that we had pulled out and we were the only thing holding that bloodshed back that wall of terror. And I felt, I felt that deeply. And, and I also saw most of the people who were my fellow people on the left walk away from that, not even give it a, a second's thought. And that got to me. That disturbed me. And I remember there was, Joan Baez had a, an article in the paper took took out one page of the paper to say what was going on in in these countries and how much uh, how much destruction and horror there was for these people and how no one was taking care of no one cared. She was right, and I identified with that. I said, "That's me too. I I don't like this." But it took me a long while because propaganda, it's scientifically developed to infiltrate your psyche and it's hard to get rid of it. Negativity has a, has a special connection, magnetism. You know, if you, as I said, if you say something negative, you know, it has a draw. That day that I read that paper and that day that I saw those statistics wasn't the end of it for me. I tried to, you know, to see where I'd gone wrong. And little by little, and with the help of many good people, I have to say, uh, I came around to understanding. Now, what do I say about today to those guys today in Hollywood who are just like me, coming in, naive, who wanted their careers to, you know, they want that beautiful career, they want that golden statue, they want, you know, the celebrity that comes with it, they want the money, and they're getting a lot of money because they're very talented, you see? What do they, what do I say to them? I say, this is a serious time, fellas. I say, pay attention, find the truth. Listen to the ones who are doing the deep work, like a Ben Shapiro, you know? Listen to these people who are trying to warn you and are trying to educate you and bring you forth. Our country is a special country, very special in the history of the world. When our forefathers came up with that Declaration of Independence and those wonderful words, it, this was a shockwave throughout the world. This changed 
the whole perspective of leadership and, and, and uh, government protect this country. This is uh, when people say from Cuba, if you want to know, if you guys want to know, I say that to you, if you guys want to know what's going on now and what the stakes are, talk to somebody who's from Cuba, from Poland, from these places where, where th th this, this horror has been inserted into their countries. Talk to them. They'll open your eyes to what's going on. It's the same thing that's happening here. The people from Cuba heard the same words. These people that are talking, uh, these people are Marxists right now. These are Marxists. This is a Marxist movement, guys. Guys who, Black Lives Matter is a Marxist movement. They, they admit it. The founders say, we're Marxists. We're trained Marxists. And... Uh, these people who say they're uh, community organizers, they're agitators, and they're trained, and they're clever. Some of them very gifted people. Know what's going on. Seek the truth. Look at the facts. Look at the facts. While you're running around doing all these other things, it's easy to pay attention to all the little things that you, oh, what dress am I going to wear, or what so-and-so, maybe I should go on his show, maybe it's a... Start looking at what's going on in our country. Be responsible. This is your country. Be a citizen of this country. Be a responsible citizen. Know what's going on. I'm going to ask you about the blowback that you've gotten in Hollywood for all of this because Hollywood conservatives don't exactly have it easy in this particular town. No, they don't. And so I'm going to ask you about that in just one second. First, let's talk about your internet safety and security. Hackers are looking for your data. Big tech, they're looking for your data. They want to make money off of you. Well, why should they make money off of you? It's your data. This is why I use ExpressVPN to stay secure online my own self. It's hard to know whether your device or network is vulnerable. If you ever use Wi-Fi at a hotel or a shopping mall or anywhere else, you're sending data over an open network. That means no encryption at all. The best way to ensure all of your data is encrypted, can't be read, is to use ExpressVPN. You just download the ExpressVPN app on your computer or your smartphone, you tap one button, and now you have secured 100% of your network data, and then you can use the internet the way you normally would. ExpressVPN, it's incredibly reliable. It is the fastest VPN service I've tried. It won't slow down your computer. They're rated the world's number one VPN provider by review sites like TechRadar and CNET. You always want to protect yourself from bad actors out there. So why exactly would you leave your data vulnerable? It makes no sense at all. That's why you should have ExpressVPN. If you want the best in online security and privacy protection, Head on over right now to expressvpn.com slash Ben for three extra months free with a one-year package. Protect your internet today with the VPN I trust to keep my own data safe. Go to expressvpn.com slash Ben to get started. All right, so let's talk about your experiences in Hollywood as an out-and-out conservative. Uh, you know, I wrote an entire book about how difficult it is to be conservative in Hollywood. I interviewed a bunch of people yeah, in Hollywood sure. who basically admitted to discriminating against conservatives, many top-name actors and directors and producers mm, who sure. said that they literally would not hire conservatives if they came across them, yeah. or that if their entire writing room was staffed by liberals, that's just because the most talented people, of course, are always, are always on the left. Uh, so what, what sort of treatment have you gotten in Hollywood now that you are so overtly conservative and, and of course, pro-President Trump as well? I, I know that I don't get certain work or attention because of who I am and what, what I stand for. Uh, but... Um, I, I think that it doesn't affect me at all. I mean, because if you know if you if you know something is right, you know, and especially I, I'm going to say especially this for me, to be on the right side, to be for something that's good. Like let, let's just say to do something for other people. If somebody said you you got to think of yourself, you can't do anything for other people. I know that that's not the truth. You can't pull me away from that. Some, somebody, no matter what they slander, they, they, they level at me. I'm going to feel good about myself when I help other people. And that's where I stand. I feel good about myself. So none of that really gets to me. I know that uh, when this life ends... Uh, I want to f be able to say I did the best I could with this life. And in order to do that, my standards are very high, very high. When people say, when they talk about a great person, I heard this just yesterday, 
talk about the sculpture of a great person. What is the most uh, important element of that description? What makes a great person? And the greatest people, the greatest people, we're talking about another level here, we're talking about the greatest people, are humble. Talked about a person who was humble. Humility and how that humility showed itself in, in this life. We were talking about Moses, actually, right? The most humble man who ever lived, someone said, right? And that's the area I'm dealing with. I'm trying, to, I'm competing on that level. So I want to be the best human being I can be. Uh, and, and as I get older, as the best example, because people are looking up to you. What's your advice for, for young actors? I get this question a lot because, you know, I've written books about this and, and because I hang out with a lot of Hollywood people. You're a young actor. You're from not L.A. Yeah. You want to come out here. You want to be a star, but you're conservative. What do you do? Do you, do you hide that? Do you sort of keep it under the oh, table? Oh, I, I see. That's, that, or do that you, kind of stuff, or do you yeah. just kind of come out out and proud? Cause, well, and I'll be honest, what I've said is that everybody I know in Hollywood who's very prominent became conservative after they were, they were very prominent. I've yet to meet somebody who was openly conservative when they started in Hollywood. And then, well, right, and then now, right now we have an election coming up. Right now, the stakes are very high. Uh, the country needs us now. Anybody who understands the value of this country and the battle that's going on to bring it down uh, has to do whatever they can to contribute to, this, to, to Donald Trump's victory and to our country being able to revive, renew itself. It's a tremendous moment in history. And I would say everybody should do everything they can. Now, does that mean that uh, I'm not trying to tell people how to get a job? I'm not interested in that really at the moment, you know. I'm saying do what you can. And uh, if you can get a, a wonderful role and be an influence to other people, uh, that's a wonderful thing. And, and, and yet you can't discard your integrity. You know, you have to bring that along somehow. You have to care for your integrity as well. So there's, there's many actors, very, very prominent actors now, who are quietly doing their thing. They're successful. They don't have to come out and speak like I do. I'm doing that for other people. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm kind of putting myself up. I'm saying, just step back, fellas. I'll take care of that. Do you know? But uh, everyone must do something. Where do you think the future of the industry is, given how far left the industry itself is moving? We had this announcement in the past few weeks that the Academy Awards is now only going to be looking at staffing of particular films, certain percentages of black or gay or Hispanic or, or women, uh, that the plot line has to revolve around one of these minority groups. Uh, one of these criteria has to be applied, which you know basically rules out nearly every Oscar winner between 1933 and effectively 2007. Mm. Um, so, well, we've gotten off, off a little bit. Not a little bit, we've gotten off. And we think that we're doing something, these people think that they're doing something generous and kind. The, this racial disturbance that we're looking at was, was created. I, I, you know, if you look back at the, the we mentioned the, the, um, the Frankfurt School. Some of the stuff that they talked about, gender stuff and stuff like that, there was, it was inserted into this society to break the family, to break the churches, to, dis, to destroy some of the fabric that keeps our country together. And that's what you're participating in. People say, what about Black Lives Matter, John? And I say, well, if you're teaching children that they are victims, I say it's child abuse. We have every child can do, they're God's, God's gift. Make, pave the way for them to be their best selves. Don't tell them that, they're, that they can't do this or can't do that. Every child is a powerhouse spiritually. Every, every, every human being potentially is a, a power, a spiritual powerhouse. So let them be that. Encourage that. Let them grow to their full height. And, uh, and I think the races are being used continuously. That's it. One of the things that's uh, fascinating to watch is, is the 
devolution of Hollywood itself. So it used to be very centralized in LA. Now you do production everywhere. Uh, and uh, because yeah. of digital streaming, it's not even as though there's a lot of gatekeepers anymore. So are you hopeful that the kind of diffuse nature of Hollywood now that you can produce a film in the middle of nowhere with a, a small budget, mm -hmm. uh, that this is going to break up a lot of the Hollywood monopoly and allow an opportunity for other kinds of uh, content to flourish? I think that's possible, yes. I think, that, you know, you can make a, f uh, a film with an iPhone or something, you know? I don't mean to just advertise iPhones, fellas, <laughs> but, you know, they have this technology these days. Everybody's got it, you know, every kid's got it. So, uh, yes, things are going to change, but there'll always be artists that use this, this painting, this paint, you know, in some way to, to give us something. And they have to be sound of mind and heart. That's what they have to be. So I, I see myself, I see uh, the hope is, where's the hope? I say, well, I'm, as I've come along to understand myself a little bit better, I've understood the importance of God. And I'm a person who loves all people of all faiths. Uh, and I say God is not sleeping. And I said this in Israel one time, I said, watch out. Because Melchizedek, when he had the writing on the wall, you know, that was his doom. It was written on the wall. God has a way of, of helping the good, you know. And now is the time when we need God most. And I think that something's I think something is going to happen here. I think something is happening with people. Uh, righteous people are coming to the fore. There's so many good righteous people we know. You know, even, you know, splend splendid people of great courage, of great intelligence, of great kindness. And, uh, and they're saying, come along, let's, let's come back together. Let's, let's pull ourselves back and, uh, and heal. That's what I say, too. So in a second, I want to ask you about your really interesting relationship with Judaism, because yes. you're not Jewish, but you have a really interesting relationship with, with the religion and with Chabad. Yeah. I'm going to ask about that in just one second. But first, let's talk about life insurance. Are you a responsible human being? If you are a responsible human being, you need life insurance. I mean, it is that simple. If you've got people who are dependent on your income and then you should die, well, they are not only going to miss you, they're going to miss the money that comes from you. But this is why you can get life insurance. You may be thinking, can I get life insurance right now? I mean, there's a pandemic and there's riots and the plagues and, and everything else. Yes, you can still get life insurance and you should. Right now, you could save 1500 bucks or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. When you're shopping for a policy that could last for a decade or more, the savings really start to add up. So what is Policy Genius? I am glad you asked. It's an insurance marketplace built and backed by a team of industry experts. Here's how it works. One, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need, compare quotes from top insurers and find that best price. Two, you apply for your lowest price. And three, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and the red tape. Policy Genius works for you. They don't work for the insurance companies. So if you hit any speed bumps, they take care of it. They even have policies that allow eligible customers to skip that in-person medical exam and do it over the phone, which is super convenient these days. Now, Policy Genius, it's been helping out my friend Jeremy Boring get his life insurance. So if you need life insurance, do like Jeremy and head on over to policygenius.com right now to get started. It could save 1500 bucks or more a year by comparing quotes on their marketplace. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it is nice and extremely important to get it right. Let's talk about your relationship with Judaism. You have this really kind of fascinating relationship with Judaism. You appear on the Chabad Telethon, yeah, yeah. a very warm relationship with Israel, but you're not you're Jewish yourself. So how did this come no. about? Uh, first of all, I wanted to just, just say one thing. I'm sitting here with Ben Shapiro. I saw Ben Shapiro when he was a younger fellow, just out of school, and I immediately took to you. I said, oh my gosh, this is wonderful, because I'm always looking for the righteous guys, you know? And That's I saw him, and then I saw him, I remember when you, you took on UCLA, when they were out of line, when there was some anti-Semitic- The BDS stuff, yeah. The what? Boycott divestment saying. Yes, exactly, over, yeah. and you straightened them out with what, with what? What was your weapon? Intelligence that you were able to use your information to glean this information, put it in the right order, and, and put it on the table and back everybody off with the truth. It was an amazing, amazing thing. I think you can get it on YouTube. Maybe you can get it on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, it's still available, so I think. Go look at it. It was an amazing <laughs> moment. And, and then I saw you take on more and more things as, as you have grown. 
And uh, I just want to uh, say that I saw you first. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but uh, I've, I'm very grateful for that. And, I, and, and there are so many people and people that you've encouraged to put the spotlight on. You know, uh, we have wonderful, you know, warriors for the truth and good now uh, because of you and your brothers and sisters who have come forth. So thank God. And you go into the... You've gone into these um, areas of the universities. We've got to save those kids. We've got to change this. We've got to save those kids. Because where, where did the KGB focus? Hollywood? This is a big thing with Lenin. Films. The universities. And now right down to the, the kindergartens. They're being given the wrong information. You send your kid off to school and they come back your enemy. Very, you know, we need people to to be able to change that so that we children are, are, have a chance. But anyway, you guys going into the universities with the temper the way it is now, and they're gonna throw stuff at you and they're gonna organize these um, primitive attacks, you know? And, you go, and uh, yeah. all you've got is your, your, the righteous, your, your truths, and and this great gift that you have and law enforcement uh, yeah, and law enforcement <laughs> and lots of lots and lots of law enforcement exactly <laughs> yeah. but anyway but you're handling you you're you're uh, making statements because those statements are getting out not only from that auditorium but they're being carried around on YouTube and people are cherishing them and learning from them so God bless well I appreciate it. it's very sweet of you so you've been doing the Chabad telethon for years and years and years. Yeah, How did yeah. you get involved with Chabad? What's your relationship with Judaism? <clears throat> Chabad is a big deal to me. Uh, well, who are the Chabad? Who is Chabad? Chabad is a Hasidic group, and the this Hasidic lineage uh, of Jewish people goes back to the 17th century or 16th or 18th century. 18th century. 18th century. The, really, the Baal Shem Tov. And- Baal Shem Tov, right? And if you know anything about um, the history of the Jews, the history of the Jews is, why am I so taken with it? Uh, first of all, my, I had a very noble father. He was a golf professional. He had a wonderful sense of humor and uh, a great love for storytelling. And it was a tremendous father and uh, loved his children, told us stories every night. They say that stories help you, you know, when you're a child. And I, I, I would have to say yes. And I remember, my father would lie down on, uh, on my bed. We had a double-decker bed with three boys, one year apart. And my older brother, Wes, was at the top. He's now called Chip because he wanted to be a rock star. His name Chip Taylor. But he used to be up there. And I was down at the bottom. And my other brother had his own bed because he was the eldest, Barry. And my dad would lie down in either one of these beds with one of us every night rotating. And he would tell us stories off the top of his head. And they were always so wonderful stories. And he had a great voice. And I would just listen to the timbre of his voice and uh, be next to him and see his profile and hear his words in this room that was lighted from the crack in the door where the kitchen light came through. Very romantic, you know. And uh, anyway, uh, he was a golf professional at a German-Jewish country club. Now, what does that mean? This is in the 19, I was born in 1938, so this is in the 40s, war years. But um, these Jewish people didn't have, uh, didn't have the ability to have a membership in other clubs. They were, there was anti-Semitism at that time. And what did they do? Did they organize riots? No. They bought land and built their own club. And this innovation was a benefit benefit to my family because my dad put food on the table for us because of this. And he was at this club, he caddied at this club when he was eight years old, and he eventually became the professional. They took care of my father. Uh, They encouraged him. They found him to be a a good fellow who was taking care of his family when he was eight years old. He He was the breadwinner when he was eight years old as a caddy. They were very poor. And then uh, they encouraged him, and they made him a, one, of the head, one of the professionals at 16 years old. And at 18, they made him the head professional. And he was there until he passed. And, uh, 
And I felt the influence of these people, the Jewish people in this club, all my life. I think his storytelling came from that. I think uh, because he, his, his parents, his, his father was a, an immigrant from Czechoslovakia who never quite learned English. And so he couldn't have learned from my dad. So I felt so much uh, of my, my, my dad's righteousness and, and kindness and all of this stuff and, and strength. He was, he was tough when he saw things out of line. He was, and he was always right. You know, he would stand up. So he, he set the template for my life. And that was because of these members of the Jewish club. And I found out, and then I saw, there many things happened to me. I remember when people talked about anti-Semitism, I knew what anti-Semitism was because I knew how crazy it was because these people were so terrific. They were great people. And they were my dad's best friends and they were very good to us as a family, the kids, the three of us. So anyway, I knew the the falsity from an early age. And I was angry about it too. I mean, I, at different times, I saw the a Life magazine picture of a, a boy in striped pajamas, behind barbed wire, and I, and I felt at that time when I looked at that picture, I said, "This, this could be me," you know, and so I had an empathy for uh, and, and an understanding of the uh, of the insanity of uh, of anti-Semitism, right from the go. And for some reason, my friends, right from grammar school on up, were all Jewish people. I don't know, I was, uh, I was drawn to them in some way. And I was raised Catholic, and I have great regard for my Catholic teaching. I was, went to good schools, had good, good teachers who helped me all the way. Uh, and I have great love for uh, John Paul II, who I played. I thought it was, by the way, I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> but, uh, and then I, I met Mother Teresa, I asked her for her blessing, for stuff I was doing with the Native Americans here. And, uh, and then I had people, spiritual people in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the Native community who I have deep friendships with, Hopi Indian man, Thomas Banyaka, great man. Anyway, but the... There was always this Jewish presence. Then I come out to California, and I, uh, I fell into a family from the Bronx. Very beautiful family. Uh, and we became buddies. And then I was uh, asked to go on this telethon. I go on the telethon, as I heard of, uh, as a favor for somebody who did me a favor, who was a rabbi, and he said, I write for the telethon. Would you do, come on the telethon? And I said, well, who, who are these people? He said, it's Chabad. He said, uh, they do a lot of good for people, regardless of race or creed. And, uh, and they're a lot of fun. And we have a telethon. And this is how they raise the money to, to go for the year. I said, uh-huh. Well, it, I'll check them out. And if it turns out to be right, I'll be very glad to do it. So... I go to meet the, the uh, head of the, uh, the, the Chabad in California. And when they say the head of the Chabad, these are em- they have emissaries throughout the world. There are now 5,000 Chabad houses across the world. And when I get off a plane anywhere in the world, I go and say, you know, the first thing I ask is, are there a Chabad house near here? Because I feel I have a kind of a, a familial yeah. connection. You know? <laughs> but also... They're very helpful to anybody. Do you know they they, they help everybody, and uh, so I, I went on the telethon. The, the, I met this fellow, and he was very remarkable. This fellow uh, Shlomo Kunin, Rabbi Kunin, yeah. and he's got these wonderful children. He's got uh, twelve children, I think. And I would I said a nice uh, prepared some nice thing. I wrote it down several times, ripped it up, said, well, maybe this, maybe that. And a couple of sentences is all, you know, give to these people. They help other people. You, people helping people. That's what this is all about. Reach in your pocket and, and give them what you can. Uh, you know, it'll be well served. And then I hear, and now the tote. There's a telethon, so they're going to have raising money, and they're going to have a tote. And what is the tote? They put on the, you know, on the board how much money they've made so far. The tote, well, 
you know, 1,265,000, if they get up that far. And I never knew if those were real because they try to do the best they can. These people are, they, they live very simply. Sure. They don't, there's nothing, there's nothing slick about this group. They just, uh, they give what they have away. Oh no, they literally just deploy people to random areas of the globe and then, ver and then you're supposed to come up with the donations a right. lot of time just to sustain your family. It's a very simple lifestyle for sure. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, uh, but anyway, uh, then they say the tote and then I hear the music and somebody pulls me into a circle of ascetic dancers. <laughs> and my response was laughter. I was laughing. I knew how silly I looked, you know, and I had long blonde hair at that time. You know what I mean? And I'm in the middle of these dancers, and I like to dance. So it was, it was, that's, but I was having a good time. So, so I, that's how I got into it. And, uh, and then I, I've spent, I spent a lot of time with him. And the, and the younger group, his children, as they were growing, they would, uh, we, we would see each other and they would always say, John, you'd like this, because they knew I was interested in everything. And they would give me information about, I, I played Noah at one point, and one of the Chabad Rebbe's, Tzemek uh, uh, uh one of the boys was going to school there, you know, uh, and in Australia, and he came by every once in a while. He'd give me some help and insights into Noah, and and, uh, and he and they would always include me in everything. Do you see? So, and I got to know the rituals, uh, the, the different celebrations and stuff. I'm always very impressive with uh, impressed with the um, with the shape of, of of these rituals, what the the meaning, the depth of meaning in all of these rituals. So, anyway, I know quite a lot about. Uh, the uh, the Jewish story from these Chabad people. And I really like Hasidism. I like the Baal Shem, the mag this magical figure. And all of these leaders are like that. The Rebbe's are like that. He set off, he, he not only taught rabbis who were teachers, he taught leaders. And each of these Rebbe's is a leader. And this Rebbe, this most recent Rebbe that they've had, was an extraordinary genius fellow who uh, not only was a genius, he was a scientist, he was many, many different areas. He's taught, he, 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 uh, he spoke 14 languages, something like that. And, uh, and when he spoke, he spoke like you. He'd speak for an hour without a pause. All this information, and people would write down everything you said. Oh yeah, Rabbi Schneerson is yeah something seminal figure in right. And not only all that, but he had this idea and this vision of sending people all over the world, populating the world with goodness and light. This is what it was. This is the mission of these people, and he sends them. And now we have five thousand, you know, and it's growing. <laughs> And uh, so uh, anyway, so I have a special f place in my heart for these people. And so much so that when my partner, my business partner, Stephen Paul, from this little family, said, John, JLTV, we want, I want to do a program for JLTV. What, what do you think we should do? I said, why don't you do something on the Chabad? This is Jewish Life Television, right? I said, why don't you do something so people can have an insight into what they no, because I, I've been the beneficiary of so much mystical information, stuff from the Kabbalah. People talk about the Kabbalah, they don't know what they're talking about. The Kabbalah is, is real rich in understanding and it all comes down to behavior. So if, if you can do a show like that so that they, they're a lot of fun, we, they sing all the time. I mean, they, the Val Shem Tov said to the people who couldn't participate in the, 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 all this uh, rich legacy of, of uh, the Talmud and all of this, he said, I'll give you a song. Here, just learn this song. And he'd teach them these songs. And these songs are known today by these young rabbis. And they sing them and you're just right back, you know, all, all those many years ago. And uh, so they're full, of, they're full of joy and uh, full of wisdom in their teachings and uh, in their behavior. And so uh, I said, let's do that. And, and so we have a show now. It's, it's going to open 
in a couple of days uh, on JLTV, and it's called Friends of Chabad. And when my partner said to me, he, I said, you got to meet these two guys. You meet Rabbi Chaim, Rabbi Levi, these two of Rabbi Kunin's sons, Shlomo Kunin's sons, and you'll fall in love with these guys. And sure enough, they came and started talking, and they... And, and he would ask these basic questions because he's not up on his Judaism. He's Jewish, but he's not so up on it. So he asked these simple questions that, like the questions that a child is supposed to ask uh, for Passover. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just the simple question. Why do we do this? Why do, you, why do you wear black? Why do you, and then the answers he, we got were so extraordinary. So I said, that's the show. I said, that's it. And he said, not only that, but you have to be on the show. You have to be the host of the show, to my friend. Mm -hmm who has a, a big personality, wonderful personality, uh, and is uh, just a radiant energy. So I said, you gotta be on the show. If I'm gonna do it, you gotta be on it. So the two of us are at it with two, these two young rabbis. Who, and, and I think it's gonna be very special, so. John, I wanna ask you one final question about your favorite movies, not just the ones you starred in, just your favorite movies generally. But if you want to hear John Voight's answers, you have to be a Daily Wire member. Head on over to dailywire.com. Click join at the top of the page. You can hear the rest of our conversation there. Well, John, thank you so much for stopping by. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, for me, Ben. Very nice to see you. You too. You've done very well, my son. <laughs> <laughs> Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Mathis Glover. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. And our assistant director is Pavel Wydowski. Associate producer, Nick Sheehan. Our guests are booked by Caitlin Maynard. Editing is by Jim Nichol. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. Title graphics are by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. 'll we'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure talk believes in American values and that free should mean you know like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.